and welcome to the I Am Woman Project, where every week we have deep thought-provoking and interesting conversations with thought leaders, change instigators, rule breakers and creative minds who think differently, sparking creativity and inspiration. Our special guests on our show cover a variety of topics just for you, and they share their personal stories to inspire, motivate and empower you, our listener. The I Am Woman podcast is produced for your enjoyment and show notes are found at www.catherineplano.com. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get into the show. This week, we have another amazing guest for you, Michelle Gibbons. Michelle is a change leadership and career expert and founder of Change Meridian. Michelle works with global leaders and teams to help them get fit for the future of work. She's the author of Step Up, How to Build Your Influence at Work and Career Leap, How to Reinvent and Liberate Your Career. Michelle's work lives at the crux of understanding, architecting, and leveraging change. Obsessed with unlocking high-impact choices to accelerate meaningful progress, Michelle is enabling a new breed of leader, one that is able to thrive in a complex, changing world. She asks, are you owning your reputation? Because when you own your reputation, you actively seek to understand how others see you and how you see yourself. You identify where there are gaps between your desired reputation and your actual reputation. You consciously construct a reputation that works for you in the long term by being positively and sustainably developed. And she shares, every day, Benjamin Franklin asked himself two questions. In the morning, what good shall I do today? And in the evening, what good have I done today? Michelle, when not running her own successful practice or managing her predictable, mischievous pup, Barney, Michelle sits on the board of the Arts Law Council of Australia and somehow finds time to venture to hidden, exotic pockets of the planet with her husband and best friend, Craig. It's now time to tune into this very inspirational woman. Enjoy. Well, we've got another amazing guest for you today, Michelle Gibbings, actually from Melbourne, my hometown. Uh, Welcome to I Am Woman Project. Hi, Catherine. How are you? I am fantastic. So, Michelle, how are you? I'm great. I was going to say, I am a Melbourne girl now, but I was born in Brisbane, so I've lived all up the East Coast. Ah, lovely. You normally hear people moving up to Brisbane from Melbourne, not the other way around, because you know what they say about Melbourne, we're like a box of chocolate. You never know what kind of day you're going to get. I know. My family think I'm mad, but I love Melbourne. Look, you know, I love Brisbane. I've lived in Sydney. I've enjoyed Sydney. I've lived overseas. I've enjoyed overseas. I think every city has its good points and then parts that drive you a little bit nuts yeah I, tr- I truly agree and I think Michelle it's what you make of it as well every city can be beautiful depending on how you want to look at it and what you do with it 
Oh, absolutely. I totally agree. Mm. So, Michelle, as we always love to start the show with our Woman of Inspiration is about her unique story. So what is your unique story and what inspired you to be and do what you do today? Well, I'm the youngest of four. So I um, – it's interesting. I grew up in a very smart family and I was not the smartest of the kids in the class, as they would say. And I, it's interesting because I look back and I go, that really inspired me to work hard because, you know, look – I've got obviously some natural gifts. I think everyone has natural gifts, but academically I really had to work hard. And, you know, I look through schooling and all my teachers, every single teacher, particularly in primary school, are you as smart as your siblings? And academically I wasn't. But what it did instill in me was this real drive and kind of determination to prove to people that I did have something to offer and that I was smart. Um, and so, you know, I look back at my childhood and I, you know, I had a great childhood. I really enjoyed growing up in Brisbane, but I really had this motto. One, I wanted to prove things to other people, but also to myself, but I see life as an adventure. Mm. And so that then meant I took risks with my career. I took risks with things that I did in terms of, you know, moving states. When I moved down to Melbourne from Brisbane, I had never left home before, I just finished university, I applied for jobs in Melbourne, got a job in Melbourne working in politics, and then my career went from there. And so I never really had a defined kind of path as to where I wanted to go. I just knew I wanted to try lots of different things. I wanted to have fun and I wanted to keep learning and being challenged. Uh, I love that. And it just takes me back to what you were just saying before we got on the show about the risks that you have taken and some of those radical shifts. Would you like to share that with our listeners? Yeah, sure. I mean, I've had friends of mine, usually females, say to me, oh my God, Michelle, your career terrifies me. And I'm kind of like, why? They say you make these seemingly random jumps into the unknown. Because, you know, I did move from, you know, working in politics and I went and worked in the mining sector and I worked in financial services. And across those sort of industries, I jumped functional roles. So I went from roles where I was working in policy work and media work to um, working for the CEO to eventually becoming the head of compliance for a bank to running large-scale change programs to being the chief of staff to the chief risk officer to one day waking up and deciding that I wanted to start my own business doing what I'm doing now. And so for some people who you know, really define them, their career by their functional role as in, you know, I'm a HR expert or I work in finance or I work in communications or I'm a doctor or I'm a lawyer. I've never just defined myself by that because I believe that we all have, you know, common skills that can be transferred to other industries and other roles. And there's also, you know, new learning that you often need to do when you move across. And I've always been inspired by knowledge and I have this insatiable curiosity I always know that I just there's more to know and I love 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 learning um so if I knew everything if I moved into a role that would bore me um and so I look back at my career and I think you know I've been really blessed I've had some amazing roles I've also had some really really tough roles but you know I often say to the coaching clients that I'm working with sometimes those tough roles the roles where you're working in an environment that's really challenging and quite political can be your moments of biggest growth 
because you work out what you're capable of doing and also it builds your resilience. And, you know, every role I've had, I've learned something from. Sometimes you learn what to do and sometimes you learn what not to do. Mm. So would it be fair to say that your topic is uh, not so much what you do, but your point of focus would be change? Is that like the topic that you kind of hone into? Well, I always say to people, all the work that I do is couched in the context of change because the world is changing. And so it's about helping people get fit for the future of work. And I do that through a number of different lenses. There's building capability in terms of helping people understand how to influence and negotiate, how to make better decisions. But then I also do one-on-one work, which is really focused on helping people either solidify when they're moving up into a new leadership position or often transferring out. So I will have people who come to me and say, you know, I need to get out of this role that I'm in. Can you help me navigate how to do that? Can you help me reposition myself in the market so that I'm, you know, pitching myself at the right level for the right role? Or sometimes there are people who, because I've done the shift out of, you know, a senior corporate role to now running my own business, People often want to find out, well, how did you do that and can you help me do that? Um, And then because I do a lot of writing, you know, I've written a couple of books, there's also the speaking engagements that go along with that. But it's all in that context of change. How do you get fit for a future? How do you make sure you've got the right capability? But not just the capability. To me, it's the courage, the conviction that you need to go, this is what I want to do and this is how I'm going to do it. And change is such a broad topic. And for our listeners, I was just explaining to Michelle that I looked at her video on her website, which you ch- check out. Uh, and I love the piece that you were talking about when I actually said to you, I love the fact that you, this is a kind of a, uh, a theme that I see play out quite often where people don't know how to influence change because lack of resources, but the, you know, the organizations are moving in one direction so fast. And how do you then influence change when you can't, you know, get on board as quickly as you want to? So talk us through how we've got it all back to front. Look, for me, I think there's a couple of elements to it. But the biggest piece is often, you know, organisations will say, oh, you know, employees are resistant to change and what we need to do is work out how we get them to buy into what they need to do. I go, yeah, okay, you know, you've got – There's one point to that, but the bigger issue is fixed leadership. It's not fixing employees. It's actually really looking at leaders and how are you building the capability in leaders to lead change? Because if the leaders are doing what they need to do, the rest of the stuff just just happens. You know, often when employees are resisting change or not getting on board, it's because the leader's not doing what they need to be doing. And so for me, I think... It's looking at it through the wrong lens. It's really easy to say, let's fix employees. And I say, hey, let's fix leadership. We've been talking for eons about leadership, and yet we're not seeing the shifts in leadership that we really need to see. And, you know, from my experience, when I worked in corporate, and I worked with some amazing leaders, but I also worked with some not-so-good leaders, and with the not-so-good leaders, often it was their leader, their boss, not being willing to have the tough conversation with them that needed to be had and, you know, not seeing consequences of poor leadership. 
And so, you know, organizations, they're big, they're often complex, they're constantly changing, and they can be highly stressful environments. And you only have to look at the stats that come out from Beyond Blue in terms of the issues of mental health in the workplace to know that we've actually got a real problem on our hands. And having good leaders not only makes teams more effective and more productive, it just makes them more psychologically safe. It also makes it just a much happier environment for people to work. Um, that um, really resonates with me. And But I think that over time, definitely, I've seen a shift definitely over the last couple of years that there seems to be a theme when you're talking about mental health that I don't know what it is. It's, it seems like we seem to be moving faster. Uh, we're not re- building the right capabilities as you're talking about. And, um, you know, and people not feeling psychologically safe in an environment. So talk us through psychologically. Um, how does one feel safe in an environment when it's, you know, there's, it's, there's, it's constantly changing, uh, you know, and people are very much driven by fear. I find in some organization because there's so much change and they're kind of change overwhelmed. And then there's this ripple effect where it's like they have no control. Uh, they don't know how to drive and influence the change. So maybe talk us through the psychological safety side of things. So the psychological safety, where a lot of that has emanated from is from the work with Google. So Google ran a 10-year study where they were looking at what were the characteristics that made the most effective, the best teams. And when they originally started the research, they assumed it was going to be intelligence, put the smartest people together and we will get the best outcomes. What they found was that the best teams were teams where they had very strong team norms in terms of how the teams work together and the key element that underpinned that was psychological psychological safety and in the report one of the guys talks about he goes you know you can't just turn up to work and it'll all be about efficiency you have to be able to step in and have those conversations to talk about the stuff that's messy that's hard that's real and I think that's the real challenge is if you have an environment where there's a lot of change People don't feel safe in their jobs because they think, oh, my God, I'm the next person on the chopping block. They don't trust their leaders and they don't trust their colleagues. Then they're not able to talk about how they feel. And when you don't talk about how you feel, that then creates a whole raft of other issues because you can't be authentically you. And when you hold on to stuff, that makes it so much harder. Um, And, you know, I'll use an example in my personal life. I had a, a situation a couple of weekends ago and I was doing some work on a weekend It was really weird because all of a sudden I felt anxious and I couldn't pinpoint why I felt anxious. And I was talking to my husband about it. And then we were having dinner that night and the guy that we're having dinner with said, oh, wow, he goes, "Um, it's amazing that you're quite so open talking about this. I said, well, for me, the first step in feeling better is to identify I don't feel quite okay now. I feel a little bit anxious because then I can go, okay, I wonder why I feel anxious. And then I can actually do something about it. And for me, part of my coping mechanism is verbalizing it because as soon as I verbalize it, I feel so much better. And so if you're in a work environment where you can't tell people that you're not feeling okay, that just makes the problem far, far, far worse. That's so true because then they're afraid of being that next person uh, because then uh, they fear being looked upon as not capable of their role and um, and therefore yeah, – the judgment. 
they yeah. feel the judgment, you know, you're not capable, you're not good enough, um, you know, and already if you're feeling anxious, often you have self-doubt that goes with that as well. And so you get this sort of toxic kind of mix of, oh, my God, I don't feel good enough, but I don't also even feel well, I can't share it with anybody, I feel alone, all of that kind of stuff. So part of creating a safe work environment is creating that environment where people talk about how they feel. Um, and, you know, I do one work with an organisation and they always say to me, Michelle, don't use the F word because for them the F word is feelings. They don't, you know, it's just in their kind of corporate DNA to talk about feelings just feels so unnatural. And the more we get comfortable really thinking about, you know, the head, heart, guts, how do I feel about this? What's my brain saying? What's my gut saying? Being really in tune with our own emotions and reactions to what's going on, the better placed you are to actually then work out, well, why am I feeling like this? And therefore, what can I do about that? I I really resonate with that because I th- I think the same thing, Michelle. Quite often, I find that people focus on you know people how they're showing up, for example. So if they're not feeling safe and they're feeling overwhelmed or stressed, they're probably not showing up in the right way. Uh, that's supporting what they want to do. And I think it's we don't have those those courageous conversations or ask those right questions like how are you thinking about this or how are you feeling about that uh, to really understand what's in their mind to then give you a better picture of why they're showing up in that way oh absolutely and if you you just think about it in you sort of your everyday life if you don't trust someone you're not going to tell them what you think and you're not going to tell them how you feel um and it then just builds and builds and builds internally so i just think as a society you know it's interesting i was reading the other day in the uk they've appointed a minister for loneliness and yeah you kind of go That is just so sad because when you are alone, it creates a whole heap of other health issues, not just mental health, but other issues. And so if you look at this as a society, there's a whole raft of factors that connect into this. And it's really that whole thing around how are we taking care of each other? And I was saying that to someone today. I was walking down a street and I heard this guy behind me on the phone and he was really angry at this person. And I thought, isn't it interesting if he flipped his intent He's, he's assuming the intent that of that person was bad. Mm. If he assumed the intent was good, he would probably be having a very, very different conversation. Yeah. And so to what extent can we, you know, and it's hard because when you're busy and you're stressed, you are not in your wise one. You're not in the, you don't have the same ability and capacity to cope with things that annoy you or frustrate you or stress you out. And so it all comes together as a package. The more we take care of ourselves, the better positioned we are to take care of other people around us. So, Michelle, what would be some attributes that you've seen when you're talking about a great leader that can drive and influence change? What would be some attributes? Oh, well, if I go back to probably one of the best leaders I ever had, and this was early in my career, um, one, she genuinely cared really cared about who I was, what I stood for, where I wanted to go. You knew that she had your back. And often when you're working in an environment that is changing, you're doing things that you haven't done before or you might be pushing the boundaries in some way or you're trying to corral a whole heap of people. So there's all this uncertainty and ambiguity that's swirling around. If you don't think your boss has your back whilst you're trying to manage through that, it's really hard. Whereas when you know that your manager has your back, 
you also know that you've got some that you can go to where you go, I don't think this is working. I don't know what to do next. I need your advice. Whereas if you don't trust your manager, you're not going to have that conversation. Um, And the manager that I'm thinking about in this particular situation, I always remember her saying to me, you know, this would have been quite early in the time that I started working with her because I worked with her for a number of years. And she said to me, you know, Michelle, I get that you're ambitious and I get that the work's important and that you want to do a good job and you want to impress people. That's great. She said, but the work is the work. And when you move on to something else, no one's going to remember the work you did. Someone new is going to come in and they'll do it different, maybe better, maybe not, but they'll do it in a different way to you. What people won't forget is how you made them feel. Mm. And that's all that matters. And she said, because if you build a great team, if you help your team members develop, if you help them get to where they want to get to, the work just happens. And so for me, it really flipped how I saw leadership because all of a sudden I realized, wow, my role as the leader is actually to really develop the team. And when I develop the the team, the work happens. Um, And it also meant that I had to get comfortable as a leader to share who I was, where I came from, what my background was, what made me uncomfortable, my vulnerabilities, whereas I had always, you know, if I'd gone through my sort of family history, my father was an academic, quite hierarchical, so he, I had these sort of notions that as a leader I couldn't be friends with the people that were in my team, I had to have distance, there had to be boundaries, and I found that the, the more the team understood me, the more they knew me, the better they connected with me and therefore the better results we got both individually and collectively. Mm, I love that. So the other, I just want to uh, unpack when you were talking about building capabilities in our leaders, what would be some key focuses that you would be working with? Um, key things are they need to be able to have the tough conversations because when you're creating a team, there will be things that don't work. So getting really clear on that, getting being able to step into that uncomfortable conversation, really developing their own sense of self-awareness. Who are they? What do they stand for? What are their trigger points? So how are they reacting under different circumstances? How do they manage those trigger points? Really helping them understand how they see themselves, how other people see them what the gap might be and therefore how they close that gap and also they need to know how to negotiate i think as leaders one of the key things that you do is you're negotiating all the time and part of your role as a leader is you're developing your team and you can't do that if you can't stand up for your team because particularly in big organizations which can be quite political environments you're there in many respects often representing the voice of your team on particular issues and selling ideas and trying to get things through and trying to get people to agree to stuff and understanding how you negotiate, how you pitch ideas is really important. So when you're talking about a negotiation, how do you pitch ideas? Oh, that's longer than a five-minute answer. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Because, I mean, to me there's so many different elements to it in terms of If I look at pitching an idea, I would break that down even further and go, okay, who's your audience? Understand what the audience is. Understand what their needs are. Understand what your needs are. Where are your points of trade-off? Because when you're pitching an idea, you need to understand, okay, do I need to get the whole thing across or just part of it across? Um, I need to understand what's the context in which I'm pitching that idea. But at the end of the day, 
when you understand your audience, you understand what the outcome is in terms of why you think that idea is important and what the value is that it's going to be adding. But you need to understand that in the context of the organization in which you're working. So to me, you know, I don't really feel like I've answered your question because I don't think it's a simple answer. And I mm. think that's part of the problem is often in organizations, people go for the quick answer. Well, what's the solution to this? And often it's, well, there is no one solution. There's multiple ways that we could do it. Let's break it down. Let's look at what that what the options are, and therefore what is the best approach to take in this particular situation. Yeah, no, I get that. And, I mean, everyone has different ways of how they negotiate. Some have steps, some have, like, how do we get to that win-win scenario? Uh, But you have answered the question. So, Michelle, you've actually, as you were saying, going on an adventure, working with large corporates and now working on your own. What would be a piece of advice that you would like to leave for our listeners that would like to embark on a new career or starting to uh, a business of their own? Well, I could cheekily suggest they should buy my book about career leaps. Um, But what I would say is... Surround. If you're going to surround yourself with people, as we always do, be careful of the advice that you listen to because there will be very well-meaning people around you who tell you all the reasons why you shouldn't do something. And just because you shouldn't do something doesn't mean you couldn't do it. Um, and so, you know, I look throughout my career and I've had times where people have said, oh, Michelle, you shouldn't do that. And I've just ignored it and gone ahead and done it. And it's turned out to be the best thing I could have done. Um When you're embarking on something new, you will never have it all completely planned. I mean, my whole transition out of corporate into running my business, it was not planned. I went on a meditation retreat. I came back from the meditation retreat and said to my husband, Craig, I'm done. He goes, lovely, done with what? And I said, done with corporate. He goes, oh, okay, so what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to open a business. He goes, awesome, in what? I said, I've got no idea. That was five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really left with this sense of I know the general sense of what I want to do, but I don't exactly know what it's going to look like. And a very good piece of advice that I got was from um, one of my mentors, and he said to me, don't close yourself off to ideas too soon because you just don't know where this will lead. You've never done this before. And that was a great piece of advice because some of the stuff that I'm doing I would never have planned, like, you know, all the coaching work that I do, which I absolutely love, like to me it's food for the soul. I didn't envisage in my original business plan that that's what I would be doing. When I wrote the second book, Career Leap, the reason I wrote the book was because I had people who kept saying to me, how have you done this? Can you help me? And I thought, wow, actually, yeah, I can. I can put it down and write a book. Um, So it's been for me, just this most amazing experience. I absolutely love what I do. But if someone had said to me five years ago, this is what I'd be doing, I wouldn't have, I would probably said, oh yeah, no, maybe not. I can't imagine I'd be doing that. So it's been evolutionary. I mean, I'm really clear now the space I play in and I love what I do. But if I speak to you in five years time, there'll be tweaks and evolutions to that as well, because I keep evolving as I keep developing new ideas and as I keep learning and also seeing how other things can get done, I keep adding and subtracting to the work that I do. Mm. So what has been your greatest lesson over the last five years? My greatest lesson? 
that I married well. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and the reason I say that, I often say this, I do a lot of, um, I run negotiation um, stuff and I often do it with women and I always say to them, I said, look, at the end of the day, one of the biggest decisions you'll ever make is who your partner in life is. And they will either amplify your career or destroy your career. I've seen so many women who end up doing less than what they could because they've married someone who, as a, and as a consequence of that, they take on all of the caring responsibilities. You know, there's many men out there who are awesome and partners who do lots of stuff to help, but there's still quite a few who have traditional views about relationships and stuff like that. And I was just really lucky. I married really well and my Craig is just so incredibly supportive. And, you know, there are times when you're running a business where things go wrong mm. and you need someone who is absolutely in your corner um, and, is going to back you all the way and also be really interested in it. Because I think that's the other thing that I found quite interesting running a business is um, until you're in it, it's kind of hard to explain, but it does become almost like a surrogate child because you put so much energy into it and no one's going to be as interested in it yeah. as you are. And so it's quite interesting. I've had to learn that a lot of my friends ask me nothing about my business. Um, and originally I was a little bit hurt by that because I'd be like, wow, this is a really big thing. How can you not be interested in, in what I'm doing? But it's just a different world for them. And they either, and for whatever reason, they're not interested. And I've had to learn to go, that's okay. There's other people who are. Yeah, absolutely. So, Michelle, we'd love to also ask our woman of inspiration, what are some of your biggest pain points? Because we believe everyone's got pain points. What would be yours? Oh, yeah. Um, I do not have enough time in the day. Uh, I I can work and 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 work. And the biggest thing for me is the discipline to stop and working out when is enough enough and drawing boundaries around that. And that's also because if I go back to the comment before around the surrogate child, you know, I love what I do. I love learning and there's always going to be more to do. And I figured out about a year ago that I would never, ever feel completely organized. And that's very different to what I was when I was in corporate. In corporate, I could work on a project, I could deliver the project and done. Whereas with this, there's always new ideas. There's always stuff coming up and I'll never feel as though I'll be completely on top of everything. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not organized because nothing is ever delivered late and all of that kind of stuff, but it does, it's a different mindset. Um, and other pain points, I'm very lucky that my husband knows everything about technology <laughs> because technology occasionally drives me nuts. Mm. Um and look, that's probably look, that's probably it. I think I, I the other piece of advice I would say to people is pick the area that you're really interested in because you've got to love doing this. Otherwise, it's way too hard. Um, and also find other people around you who are interested in what you do and will support you. Um, and I'm really fortunate. You know, I have a network of women, um, many of whom run businesses in different fields to mine and it's you can learn so much from people who are in different sectors because they'll be doing something in a different field in a different context and you can look at that and go wow I can take that flip it and apply it in this way I'm going to get a different outcome and a different result but it's actually going to help me do something that I need to be able to do so um 
Yeah. Mm, I could I probably keep, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just, just trying to think whether there are other ideas, but, yeah, yeah, biggest issue for me is time. Yeah, I know. I can relate to that. I think that, you know, I love what I do, but that's the – I think that's a bit of a um, – you know, you could actually overwork yourself to the point where you get, you know, maybe burnt out or a little bit tired because I'm the same. I just work, 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 work because I love it. And I keep saying to myself, I don't feel like I work a day in my life. And then all of a sudden it goes, oh, your body just goes, no, I think you better stop, Catherine. It's time to rest. And you seem like very, very focused in everything that you do. So, Michelle, what do you think are some of the reasons or one of the main reasons people fail to succeed in business? Ooh, well, I just want to pick up on a, the other point in terms of focus because, yes, I'm incredibly focused and I always say to people, deliberate. I'm very deliberate about what I do and when I do it um, and I'm also del- deliberate about what I don't do. So I think I'm very strategic in what I do. Mm. Um, I would say I think people who, who when they fail, they – it's like diffusion. They're trying to do too many things at once. And so I am very planned in terms of I know what I need to get done by when, and I have all these ideas, but I have a process for capturing those ideas and working out when I'm going to get to them. I don't want to lose it, but I don't need to do it now. And so I'm really good about understanding what needs to get done now versus what can get done later. I'm very good at managing my energy. Mm. And so for me, sleep is critical. I manage my sleep regime religiously. I do a lot of public speaking. I do a lot of, you know, where I can be standing all day, talking to hundreds of people, and I love it, but it uses an enormous amount of my energy. And so I get eight hours sleep Mm. every single night, even on weekends, and I am religious about how I manage that. I meditate every day. I'm very good with exercise um, you know, I've, I've always been pretty good with my diet, but in the last three months, I've made some very radical shifts with my diet and that has just totally transformed my energy levels. Um, and that's been remarkable. And I'm like, wow, I should have done this years ago. And so it's all of those little things because I always say to people, you know, I look at what I do and the sort of message that I'm selling. And if I turn up and look tired and disheveled, People go, wow, that's really incongruent. She's talking this whole message about, you know, getting fit for the future of work and living their best life and all of this kind of stuff. And she just looks like she needs to go on a holiday. Mm. So, and I think for me, there is that sense you've got to believe your own message, but you've also got to be the best advocate for your own message. So, if you're running a business, be really deliberate about what you do, why you're doing it. Um, and when you're doing things and work out who you need to have around you for support. So I got support staff early, probably earlier than when I, you know, in some respects could have afforded it, but I made a decision. I know that if I get this support staff early, it's going to accelerate my business growth. And so there are things which I spent money on in year one, year two, which on paper people would have said, why are you sending money on that now? Because you're not making, yeah, you're making money but hey that's going to take away from your profit I was like yeah but this is a five-year ten-year game and if I do this now it's going to actually accelerate me which means I'm going to get to my end goal faster Mm, absolutely now I'm curious what kind of diet that's changed your life well I'm going to sound very boring (laughs) Uh, vegan no wheat no alcohol okay that's not boring yeah well look and it's really interesting because Part of it was for me, I had, I don't drink coffee. I've never drunk coffee. Um, and I had to get off 
um, my one crutch, which was Diet Coke or Pepsi Max, and I would occasionally I'd get off it, I'd be off it for a year, and then I'd go back on it. And then I got introduced through a friend of mine to these sort of natural fizz stick things, which are like a, a bit like a Barocca. But it meant I got off the Diet Coke. And when I was doing the program, he sort of do this detoxy thing at the same time. And I was doing it and thought, oh, my God, I feel amazing. And so I've just kept doing it. And it's been one of the easiest things I've ever done. And I would have thought, particularly giving up dairy, I was like, wow, I love tea with milk. How am I going to do this? And I just haven't missed it. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So, Michelle, as we wrap up this show, we always love to ask our woman of inspiration to pick one word that best describes her personal brand. So what would be that one word for you? Can I use two? You can use two. (laughs) Of course you can. I often say to people, to me, it's sophisticated pragmatism. Okay. Because to me, there's an elegance to everything that I do. I'm really, I want things to be simple and clean and elegant, but it's got to be pragmatic. It's got to be, don't do something if it's not going to add any value. And so when I talked before about deliberate, I'm very delib- deliberate about what I do in my business. I'm very practical. I'm also very practical with my clients. I'm there to deliver value. And I always say to people, I am not building in obs that sort of, you know, built in obsolescence so that I'm there forever. I don't want to be there forever. I want to build the capability so that people no longer need me. Um, and so there's an elegance and a simplicity to the work that I do, but I really want it to really make a difference to people. Mm, I love that. So the other thing that we do as we wrap up the show, Michelle, is we always love to ask our woman of inspiration to leave three shiny golden nuggets or hot tips for our listeners. So what would be those three shiny gold nuggets that you would like to leave for our listeners today? Get more sleep. Honestly, it is, you know, if you do not get enough sleep, it's akin to turning up to work drunk. And I always say to people, I don't know when it was a good idea to turn up to work drunk, but you are cognitively impaired when you do not get enough sleep. Um, be deliberate in terms of what you do and when you do it and be kind to yourself because when you're kind to yourself it's easier to be kind to others Mm, I love that one too I love the be kind one that's awesome because I don't think I think we you know we're we're quite um oh I don't know I'm not saying that we're not kind to ourselves but I think we tend to be uh, how could we have done that better how could we have done that different instead of uh you know, geez, you've done really well, Catherine, today or whatever that may be. So I love that one. That really resonates with me. So, Michelle, where's the best place for our listeners to find you? To They go to my website, which is michellegibbings.com. So M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E and then Gibbings, G-I-B-B-I-N-G-S. And did you want to just give us a bit of a heads up on your books for our listeners? That would be lovely. So two books. The first one was Step Up, How to Build Your Influence at Work, which was all written around how do people who are technically focused, they might be a HR practitioner or a risk practitioner or finance, so very good at their craft, but really understand how do they influence in a complex changing environment to be able to get things done. And then the second book, which was Career Leap, how to reinvent and liberate your career, which is all the steps that you need to put in place to one, take your career to the next level. But also if you're looking at shifting your career, it takes you through all the things that you need to do to understand where you are, where you want to get to, and what's the plan of action you need to put in place to make it happen. Oh, love it. So for our listeners, highly recommend check it out. And they're nice, clean books when you're talking about being deliberate and uh, when you're talking about doing it with style and sophistication, uh, you can see that in your books. 
Oh, thank you. That's lovely. Yeah. So, Michelle, thank you so much for your time and your energy and sharing the wisdom for uh, with uh, ourselves. Uh, absolutely love your energy. Oh, thank you. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. That brings us to the end of another episode. I hope you enjoyed the show as it is my mission to reach out and inspire as many individuals like you. And one of the best ways to help us achieve this goal is by giving us a good review on iTunes. It's easy and it only takes about 10 seconds. And when you do, please be sure to let us know by sending us an email to collect your special gift. Where you have a choice from six guided meditations or an ebook to soothe your soul. Now, if you have any questions or special guests that you would like to hear from, please send us an email to support at katherineplano.com.au and we will get right back to you. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Catherine Plano. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Until next week, please take care of yourself.